This is Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. I'm Steve Schubert. Welcome to our podcast. Today we continue our exploration of Genesis with the story of Sarai and how her name was changed to Sarah, which means laughter and why that's important. Here's our senior pastor, Michael Gallup. So, clearly there's a uh, major theme in our text this morning, which is laughter. Now, we're kind of jumping around a little bit. We've been going pretty much in order as we've been surveying the book of Genesis. Uh, The first part of chapter 18, there's this really cool story about these three strangers that come, and um, there's this practice of hospitality. But their part of the story really, although it's important for what we're going to talk about this morning, it really kind of ties into what we'll talk about next week which is Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, so you know, light, easy stuff. But for today, I want to focus on Sarah and her interaction with these strangers, and then also we see her story uh, come to a very wonderful climax in uh, chapter 21. But central to her story and to this story is this theme of laughter. And, and it got me kind of thinking. Laughter is such a really common, everyday uh, just a very human thing, and yet I, I think I struggled to answer the question, why do we laugh? I mean, we, maybe we make those easy things like, well, something was funny. Well, what is it, what makes something funny? I mean, there's this, there's this kind of question that seems something, that's something so innate, something so natural, something so normal, that I didn't really understand why. I'm, I'm curious, I've got some thoughts, but I'm curious if you guys have any, any uh, feedback for me. Why do you laugh? How would you answer that question? And I acknowledge the odd juxtaposition that we're having a sermon on laughter this morning. Um, Yet, uh, I think, perhaps, uh, in God's sovereignty, we'll see that it it makes a lot of sense. So, again, why do you laugh? I think it's a reaction to something you don't see coming. Yeah. Okay. So, a pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the general like really uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, so almost like a, uh, so I'm interpreting here, like a defense mechanism or some kind of protect you. Yeah. So, so in an awkward situation, you can laugh as a way to diffuse the situation. Okay. Tickles. Tickles. Have you ever thought, why is tickle, like, why does, why can't you tickle yourself? There's, yeah, it's a weird, I don't know, it's kind of a, you see it coming, it's not a surprise, okay. But Nico will come up to me, they're doing a laughing exercise, by the way, Nico will come up to me and say, tickle me, and I'll go, and I'll tickle him, and he'll fall on the ground laughing, so I guess it's a surprise, I'm not sure. Yeah, they're, they're going, they're going for it in there, so, it is, we'll talk, I'll tell you what they're doing here in just a minute, um. <laughs> uh, why, why else do you laugh? <laughs> yeah, you're amused. Yeah, it's it is. It's a reaction of joy, often for sure. Um, laughter is such a core part of my identity, and I don't. I don't think that I'm trying to elevate myself 
you know, apart from you. I think we all enjoy a good laugh, but it was really kind of core to who I was in my early years. I was the class clown. Like, I got in trouble so much. I spent a lot of time in the principal's office in elementary school because I was disruptive. That was the word that was being used. I look at back on it now, and I see that I had communication and leadership skills. And I was just, you know, trying to work them out. And, uh, and a, but I just didn't know the appropriate setting and, and manner to do so. But humor became this really core part of who I was. And I began to sense... Uh, a certain level of kind of pride or, or sense of self-worth that I could make people laugh. And so that class clown sort of persona carried with me into my uh, teen years and early college years where I kind of tried to entertain people and I really felt like that was where my value was. And then I had this earth-shattering experience, I got saved, right? I had been going through this wild year, uh, college year experience and the Lord broke through the midst of that. And I uh, found myself in this little rural church in Arkansas, and all of a sudden my entire paradigm for who I was and what the world was about was totally turned upside down. And so I had no idea how to interact in this new world because my life had been centered around this act, and all of a sudden I began to find myself that my humor was no longer appreciated. Uh, it was ridiculed even. I was shamed at times for the type of jokes I made. And I began to kind of internalize that and feel like maybe that humor in and of itself was inappropriate for Christianity. In fact, early on, one of my disciplers, uh, I made a joke to him, and it was a pretty innocuous joke. He stone-faced, did not respond and quoted a scripture to me about not uh, using unwholesome language. It wasn't a dirty joke. <laughs> and in that moment, this man who I was really eager to please, because in some ways he represented God to me, and I wanted to please God. I mean, despite all the humor of my, la of my childhood, often it was a cover for all the pain and uncertainty and insecurity. So here God was, I thought, offering me a chance to receive love, and I thought that my jokes were not, well, uh, were not good. I began to realize quickly that Christianity was no laughing matter. And I had to take myself very seriously. I remember at one point I had a gathering of some other young adults in my local church, and we were having too much fun to my estimation. And I said, do you guys want to do a Bible study? This was my impromptu, like, we're hanging out. What do you want to do now? I'm like, let's study the Bible. And I was dead serious. And the, the grace of my friends, they looked at me and said, okay. <laughs> and they sat there and suffered through my Bible study. Um, but in many ways, that epitomized this humorlessness, this uh, taking myself too serious aspect of my faith that began to emerge early on. As I said, Christianity was no laughing matter. And I think that that kind of tension. How do we deal with that? How do you live within this kind of serious world uh, and deal with laughter that our text today begins to speak to? So if you guys remember in chapter 17, we're dealing with the sign of the covenant, circumcision. God is uh, asking Abraham to hold nothing back, to offer all of himself to him. And he makes this tremendous promise to Abraham about the blessing that will come through his son. And this is Abraham at 99 years old, and Abraham finds himself on the floor. Verse 17, chapter 17, Abraham fell on the face and laughed. And he said to himself, 
Can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? I think what we're seeing here in Abraham's laughter, which is echoed later in Sarah's, is almost a sense of mockery. Uh, it's similar to what Steve said, this surprise. I'm a 99-year-old man. We've never had children. This is impossible. And yet God, El Shaddai, the Almighty, has said to me that I'll bear a child. This is a surprise. Although I think Abrams responds with a lack of faith. He's surprised at the ridiculousness of this promise, the impossibility of it. And so Sarah, we see her in the background as these three strangers appear in the camp on the heels of this sign. Uh, the text is kind of interesting and presents these three strangers as the appearance of the Lord. It actually goes back and forth between the singular and plural voice as if it's three men and yet the voice of the Lord and it's the voice of the Lord and yet three men and it's, it's a fascinating passage and we'll deal with it more next week. But they begin to make an annunciation. And this was a common practice of a stranger that would come into uh, an ancient Near Eastern home, that they would offer some sense of good news or glad tidings. They would offer some stories from the road. And so these men offer this word to Abram. They said to him, where's your wife, Sarah? And he said, she's in the tent. And then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women, which is basically to say this was post-menopause. She is no longer able biologically to have children at all. Uh, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh. I think here we see something uh, that uh, is building on a theme that we've seen throughout the story of Abraham. There's this utterly ludicrous, impossible promise that God has made to Abraham. I mean, when he starts this 25 years prior, they're still both advanced in age. They're still both unable to have kids. And yet we also see Sarah wasn't able to have kids even when she was of age. Now here they are old and they've had all these roadblocks and as God has continued to repeat this audacious promise, Abraham, and now we see Sarah as well, respond with a limited faith. They just can't see it. It's too big. It's too good. This is in many ways the final rebuttal. Sarah finally says, and it's explicitly stated, not only is she old, but she is too old. What was unlikely, perhaps at best before, is now completely and utterly impossible. But what does God say to her in the face of, I would argue, maybe her mockery, laughing at his word, laughing at his promise? How does God respond? Does he knock her down? Does he smite her? Does he kick her out? These are the words he says. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? It's a rebuttal. It's, it's a chastisement, and yet it's full of hope. It's still full of promise. And it's one of the most wonderful sentences ever uttered in the Scriptures. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? What's fascinating, as I was studying this, the, the word that we have translated wonderful here 
would sometimes be translated hard or difficult. I begin to think, like, how is that the same word? Like, some of our translations says, anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too difficult? Others, is anything too wonderful, too marvelous? And so I put on my nerdy Hebrew hat and dug in deep and discovered that this word is a word called pala. And it does, in fact, mean both hard, difficult, and yet wonderful. And really, the difference is who is doing the action. This verb, when it's left up to us, means that something is beyond us. It is impossible. We can't do it. It is difficult, hard, at best, more than likely, totally and utterly impossible. And yet when God is the subject, the difficult and the hard become the wonderful. The impossible becomes the marvelous. I love the beauty of that word that caught up in just a single word is this deep theology that the light shines in the darkness. This deep theology of the cross that will come to fruition as we get into the New Testament, that despite the presence of death, resurrection reigns. God speaks to the barren Sarah, who's years and years past the even probability dates. I mean, just she is completely out in the midst of the darkness where ushered back into Genesis 1-2, the voidness of creation, the barrenness, the darkness, and the Spirit of God hovers over it, speaks a word, and light shines in the darkness. See, God's not doing something unique and new and seer. He is acting as he always has. This is his character. This is his nature to make the difficult marvelous. That is what he does. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And we get to Genesis 21, the culmination of the story, and we see that the answer is no. No. Verse 1, the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said. Just like in Genesis 1, the Lord speaks, and it was so here in Genesis, even in the, despite the presence of disorder, despite the presence of darkness, despite the limits of Sarah's faith, the Lord speaks, and it is so. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. In case we missed it, our author repeats it twice. He gives it to us. He lets us know that the Lord said it, and he did it. Remember, we say his promise is just as good as its fulfillment. And Sarah responds, verse 6, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears, everyone who hears will laugh with me. What a fascinating turn. This reaction that she had in the face of God's audacious promise with her limited face to mock his word, to mock his promise, to laugh at what he said he would do has become the very thing that is now the sign of his glory in her. In fact, Isaac's name means, if you forgot, laughter. We're laughing over laughter. God has made Isaac and made laughter for her. And I think that there's something truly cool, truly amazing in this passage. As I read this through that lens of Michael, who is way too serious for his own good, who saw Christianity as no laughing matter, I am stunned to read that it is God who made laughter. Maybe I took myself too seriously. 
Or maybe I didn't take God seriously enough. It is God who has made laughter. And how far will this laughter go? How far will it stretch? How far will it creep in and take hold? What does Sarah say? Everyone, everyone who hears will laugh. I love this idea. I love this picture and what it does to us. I mean, think about the nature of Sarah in this moment. For 25 years, her and Abraham have been dealing with this promise. And as wonderful and beautiful as it may have seemed, they've been dealing with their anguish and their doubt and their fears and these back, you know, back falling back and attacks and everything that they've dealt with. Would this ever really happen? 25 years of darkness, 25 years of sorrow, 25 years of trouble, 25 years of doubt, and now finally laughter. In the darkness, in the despair, God brings his joy. Uh, theologian Karl Barth says, laughter is man's humble reaction to the amazing and miraculous fact that man is a recipient of God's honor. Laughter is our humble reaction of the amazing and ridiculous fact that God gives us his honor. And so we laugh with Sarah that God is good and there is nothing too marvelous for him. I began to realize that in my own story. It wasn't much longer after this period that I was actually at a church camp and uh, Cliff was there. That was one of the, I think we'd met prior, but that was really, I think, where our friendship first started to take hold. And I was really conflicted because this was a really fun camp. Uh, at least for me at that point it was. It was a, there was children and teenagers there and our church was there. And Cliff was leading worship and he was great. And I was like, man, this guy's awesome. And uh, I really want to be his friend. And now I know better. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm still his friend. Um, the song that you sang, I don't know if you sang a lot, but the one that always stuck with me was I'm Trading My Sorrows. Yes. I knew that would make you laugh. That's why I didn't tell you beforehand. Um, which, which is kind of a cheesy song, maybe. But I remember the lyrics of the song just kind of grabbed hold of me. I'm trading my sorrows. And this idea of joy will come in the morning. And the reason that it really struck me was because joy was this really confusing thing for me as a Christian. We would show up at our church on Sunday morning and we'd sing joy, joy, joy down in my heart. And everyone's shuffling their feet and looking at the floor. Joy, joy, joy. And I, and I realized, I began to feel shame about that, and it felt like joy was something that we had to perform, that we had to pretend, that it was something we had to kind of conjure up within ourselves, and, and it was odd to me, and yet I never really felt this sense of joy, and yet what I did feel very real was sorrow. There was a young boy at this camp named Chris, and Chris really latched on to me. He was around eight years old, and I was kind of a counselor thing, and we, he just, we and him and I connected, and we we're having fun and enjoying each other, and he was starting to bring that joy out of me. He was calling it out of me, calling me into his eight-year-old self. And as I began to get to know Chris's story, I became overwhelmed with the sorrow. Chris's father, at that point, had been imprisoned for murder. <laughs> and I was just like, God, how could this be? How can this boy suffer like this? It's not fair. Like, look how beautiful he is. Look how full of life he is, and yet he's dealing with this pain. And it began to overwhelm me. I, I didn't know how to deal with that sorrow. And during the evening's worship, as I've been working through it all, 
I came to this place where it felt kind of like surrender, like it was just beyond me. I didn't know what to do with it. My faith had reached its limits. And during one of close worship songs, I remember I was on my knees, my arms were extended, and I was weeping. I was fully embracing the sorrow of that moment. And Chris came and sat down beside me, put his arm around me, and he looked at me and started laughing. <laughs> he said, why are you crying? And I said, I, I, could, I just couldn't respond to him. And he goes, and he just kept laughing. And he started to make me laugh. And he, he, his face got bigger and brighter and the joy became more real as I was reciprocating that laughter to him. And he said, Michael, when this is all over, can we go play? And I knew right then that that was the voice of the Lord for me was speaking to me and showing me the reality of that song, which is based on the scripture in Jeremiah, that joy does come in the morning. Now, not necessarily that all his pain had been transformed or different. Um, there are some cool stories behind that that I'd love to share with you at another time. But in that moment, I just, I believed it. I believed that the joy of the Lord was real and it was bigger and it was more wonderful than all the difficult things in this world. And we played. In fact, that night, Cliff and another friend of ours went around camp doing a bunch of mischief, and I felt really guilty about it, but I also had fun. And I began to trust him and trust this other person, and now my peers were leading me into joy. And I'm grateful for that. Laughter had been reinstated in my life, had become, again for me, a defining factor. Not to cover up my pain, but as a product of my pain's healing. Laughter is healing. This is part of my sermon prep. I listened to like these series of podcasts on laughter, and I was surprised to find that there is an actual official field of study called gelatology. Uh, have you ever heard of that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very small. There's no like, uh, it seems like, no. I asked our resident PhD, have you? So it must not be a real thing. No. <laughs> the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dr. Samuel Atchison, yes. Um, but gelatology, it's not the study of gelatin or jello or anything, but it's this idea, it, it is the study of laughter. And like I said, there's no department of gelatology at any major university, but there are folks who dabble in this study. And the one guy I listened to, he was both a psychiatrist and he had like seven different degrees and all this, and gelatology was one of his fields of study. And the thing that had struck him was the actual... Uh, effect that laughter has on the body, that it has a literal healing effect. Now, we've heard the cliche that laughter is the best medicine, and it's not the best medicine, but it literally serves and acts like medicine, that it produces in us a certain hormonal reaction that is healing. Uh, it reduces stress. It has all these tremendous beneficial aspects that, that can give us healing and life in our bodies, which I found to be tremendously interesting. He pointed out that we've tried to harness that and turn laughter into some sort of an exercise. And so there are these laughter clubs. That's what the kids are doing here, uh, often associated with laughter yoga, where you get together and you just start laughing. And so I listened to a podcast with a laughter yogi because I was really curious about this. And uh, it really upset me, <laughs> like a lot. Because the first thing you listen and hear when they start the podcast was just laughing. And they're just laughing and laughing and laughing. And I was just angry. <laughs> I was really angry. 
That may have something to say about me, but, it, but I can understand and, and, and sense the falsity of it. That, that they were trying to conjure something that wasn't real. It, it kind of reminded me of the laughter of my youth that was a cover to my pain. Because, see, I don't think that necessarily laughter itself is a thing that it's healing, but it is the sign of healing. That the healing we have in our body coincides with the laughter. Laughter is a product of a transformation within. It, it sounded a bit like they were mocking. It sounded like a mocking laugh. And it ticked me off. I think you're right. A lot of people in this gelatologist said that laughter often is a product of surprise. A pleasant surprise. And we, we maybe think that it's even tied to this early kind of primal aspect of humanity that when a threat would come at us and we were able to overcome it, that there was this natural reaction of laughter. It was also considered a defense mechanism that when you're in an encounter with a stranger, an unknown person, that we would laugh as a sign to say, hey, no problem, no threat, we're okay. Tickling, if you think about it, the most ticklish spots when you're often the most vulnerable. And so as a person comes at you, there's a sense and deep within us in our fear core that says, don't touch me there. But then we realize it's an act of love and kindness and acceptance since we break forth in laughter. Laughter at its core, written into the core of our DNA and who we are, is a response that the darkness and the threat and the pain that comes at us has not overcome us. And that is the healing that it offers. I think when we think about it on a spiritual level, that life has thrown itself at us, its hardest, its best shot, and we've overcome. By God, we've overcome, and we can't help but laugh. I think we see this happen a lot around funerals. Uh, as a pastor, I've been a part of several funerals, and something that's always struck me as interesting and kind of beautiful is the amount of laughter that I hear, especially among the family at funerals. And at first, I felt that was kind of odd until my own brother passed away. And I cried, and I cried a lot. But I also laughed a ton. My mom and I sat in the airport in Atlanta waiting on our connecting flight. We started reading some texts that people were sending us, and we just started thinking about the nature of who my brother was, and we started laughing and laughing and laughing. But the first person who laughed over my brother's death was Mary Grace. I got a phone call in the middle of the night, and I was just floored. It was a shock. For those of you who don't know, he, he died out of the blue. We didn't expect it. He got an infection, and he was gone. It was not a call we were anticipating. He was a young person. And so I began to make my plans for leaving. I was in Denver. I had to go to South Carolina. I realized I had to tell my little girl who loved and adored her Uncle Aki that he was dead. And that hit me more than anything. As much as I missed him and was sad that he was gone, I didn't want to tell her. And so as I'm sitting there telling her, she begins to just burst in tears. She wraps her arms around me. She squeezed me so tight. And... and the love within me just compelled me. I was like, I want to comfort her. I don't want her to feel this. I don't want her to experience this pain. And so with a very small amount of faith, I began to say to her what I thought might be a hopeful reality. And I said, you know, those you know, my brother lost his leg. Aiken's with Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, he's got his leg back. And he's skipping around and laughing and frolicking. And as I'm saying that, I'm like, what the heck am I saying? You know, I don't, I don't believe it. 
And the look on her face was transformed. And she burst out laughing. The vision of my brother skipping with Jesus brought this sense of joy and comfort and healing to her that I I can't describe to you. She just started laughing and laughing and laughing. And you know what? I laughed too. But you know what? I did more than laugh. I began to believe. I said those words to her because I'm a pastor and that's my job and I'm, I'm supposed to believe those things. I'm supposed to help others believe those things, but I didn't right then. But I saw the joy in her face. My love producing faith in her and her faith in her producing love and hope in me and it was this beautiful picture that made me say, yeah, there isn't anything too wonderful for our God. I saw it and I believed it and I laughed. I laughed. As I said, I think often we laugh to hide from the pain of this world. And I get that. I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. But I do think it's kind of small. What if instead of the laughing to hide our pain, we laughed to heal our pain? John 16, 33, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, he looks to his disciples and he says, in this world you will have tribulation, trouble, darkness, pain, suffering, but be of good cheer. Laugh, for I have overcome the world. There is not a threat to us, to God, to the light that he has not overcome. This isn't a mocking laugh. This isn't a fake laugh. It is rooted deep in the weeping and the trouble that we encounter but it is a proclamation of hope. Throughout the scriptures, we're instructed to worship the Lord through these acts called feasts. Obviously, we celebrate him with the feast of the Lord's Supper every week. And every one of these feasts spoke to the story of threat, threat to the promise, threat to the goodness of God, threat to the light. And yet in the face of that darkness, the people of God gathered together to proclaim that the light overcomes the darkness. And so they could say together, Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me, a banquet before me in the presence of my enemies. And so we come to the table every Sunday, not just to remember Jesus, not to just experience him, but to proclaim our faith that Christ has died. It's the greatest greatest threat effort to the promise. Christ died and Christ rose. He overcame. He overcame. We come to the table as an act of celebration in the face of the darkness and the stuff we see in El Paso and Dayton, the stuff we read on the internet, the stuff we experience in our life and say, nothing is too wonderful for our Lord. We eat and participate in his suffering but we also eat and participate in his overcoming, his resurrection, his love, and his joy. I think God sees our tears like I saw my daughter's. And he cries with us, but also from the depth of his being, he seeks to comfort us and to promise us that even this will pass, that even in this, he is making all things new. That even despite the cross, resurrection is the truth. And I believe as we come to this table and we celebrate and eat this meal, 
that maybe that hope can take root in us. That our faith that is so limited that we often laugh to mock God would somehow bring us to the place where we laugh with God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of laughter. It has healed me many, many times. God, I pray that my laugh would continue to be an instrument of healing, an instrument proclaiming the goodness of the gospel, that no matter how dark the world is, your light overcomes, that love wins. And so this morning, Father, may we come to your table with whatever morsel of faith we have to hope beyond hope that just maybe there is nothing too good for you. There's nothing too wonderful for our Lord. May we taste and see that that is true this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. Setting the Table is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast apps. You can learn more about us at thetablelittlerock.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at thetablelr. And we'd love to have you join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Red and Blue, Arkansas in downtown Little Rock. Our address is 1415 West 7th Street. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good.